I'm Simon Burton and welcome once again to Cambridge Arts Roundup, an hour that will take us into the world of a Cambridge poet, visit an artist with a complex that helps him create, gets to grips with local history of women's suffrage and discusses abstract art in studio with a local painter. In this edition, poet Mina Gorgi talks on her work and her new anthology scale. Kinesthetic artist Chris Dobrowolski talks on his often large-scale installations and on having imposter syndrome that often sparks his creative ideas. Scientific historian Patricia Farrer tells us about how women in Cambridge played a key part in changing the course of history in her book A Lab of One's Own, Science and Suffrage in World War I. And painter and former lecturer Peter Hawksby talks on what goes into one of his creations. Anyone who's had a serious go at creative writing will know that it takes a great deal of discipline to publish notable work. So how do writers capture something ephemeral in life long enough to examine it, explore it and weave it into a poetic work before the whole idea slips through their fingers in thought like a live fish escaping their grasp? To satisfy my curiosity, I visited Mina Gorgi, an English lecturer and poet and fellow of Pembroke College, whose work Art of Escape won Telegraph Book of the Month, and she's just published a new anthology entitled Scale. The Art of Escape. The great Houdini closed his eyes, imagining himself inside the lock, iron passageways opened before him. He felt his way along these dark canals and out of a coffin submerged in water, or from a straitjacket buckled and suspended from a bridge like a giant man-moth. Closing his eyes, he felt the night air close against his skin. Even the outside couldn't hold him long. Mermaid Caught alive just off the Shetland Isles, two feet in length and finned along the spine. Her tiny hands are webbed. The lower portion of her breast scales into a slippery tail. Only her voice escaped. I'm here with Mina Gorgi, fellow of Pembroke College. Her, her book, After the Escape, won the Telegraph Book of the Month. Your work appears in lots of different publications as well at the moment, so it's becoming very successful. Well, thank you very much. It's been a very exciting time over the last couple of years. My book came out in 2020, Art of Escape, and since then I've written a new collection, Scale, which just came out a month or so ago with Carcanet and... Yes, it's been an exciting time. Uh, since I published Art of Escape, I've, I've had poems in a few magazines and journals and um, had some readings and so on, which has been great. And in fact, just, uh, I was just very glad to have had um, momentum to write more poems after the collection. So was... You have an interesting past because you were born in, in Tehran yeah. originally. Did that shape much of your, your writing and your orientation to writing? Well, it's an int- yes, um, I was born there in Tehran and, and we lived there until I was five and um, after uh, around the time of the Iranian revolution we, we left, um, came to London where my mum's family, well, my mum was I'd grown up in London. I suppose at a very young age, I, I did find a kind of comfort in, in words and in making up little jingles and rhymes and things. And there's a sort of home you have in a way, a home you have in language and in music, that the kind of music words can make and the patterns words can make. And I do remember walking around as a little kid, sort of 
rhyming to myself or making up, playing with words and finding words um, very comforting in that way, finding, finding a kind of anchor in, in words. Um, so I always enjoyed, enjoyed that kind of home language can give us. And yeah. Something that you seem to be able to do with your work is to um, examine things oh. tremendously clear and clearly mm. um, and then wrap them up in language um, in a way that makes them fascinating. And, and that uh, first poem, Mermaid, I think does that wonderfully, which is that you're, you're looking at something which, which could, in many senses, you examine it like you would look at a fish in a, um, mm. in a, fr- in a keep net. But um, at the same time, it's obviously something completely fictitious and also a woman at the same time. Um, and also caught and captivated like an animal. So there's yeah. lots, lots in that, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's funny you should say that about the fish as well, because in fact the poem was inspired by a chance encounter uh, in Reading. Um, I was visiting a, a friend in, in Reading and she was having her graphic design um, final art show. And they have a, an amazing collection in Reading of ephemera. And one of the things I saw was... Um, a, a kind of advert from the early 19th century to uh, a kind of a, an advert to go and see a mermaid uh, and, it, and it was a sort of you know a bit like going to the circus and seeing a, a kind of a, a, an extraordinary creature or something this was an advert to, to see a real mermaid which I believe they used to catch fish and then do some incredible taxidermy with monkeys and make some sort of bizarre creature which they then uh, described as a mermaid, so so it was, it was a kind of a, a, there was in fact fish involved <laughs> in the mermaid, but but I, it did get me thinking about um, yeah, well I suppose about this kind of hybrid creature that this mermaid originally was, and yeah, it's true that I was interested in the idea of. Um, why did you leave um, um, Iran in the first place? What was the reason? Well, we left because uh, well things were getting quite difficult over there for uh, during at the t- around the time of the revolution in terms of the, and the war my parents i don't think they ever thought they were leaving forever i think they thought they were just leaving for a while um, and i th- th- our school closed down. We went to an English-speaking school in, in... I went to an English-speaking school in Iran, and I think they thought life was going to be harder for children, and especially for girls, um, and they wanted us to have uh, a better life and opportunities and so on. My mum's family, luckily... My mum was British, and her family were all here, and I think they hoped that things would be easier if, if we came here, and indeed they were. We, we, I remember going back to visit my grandmother and family a few times uh, when I was a child after we left, and, you know, it was during the time of the uh, Iran-Iraq war, and there was bombing, and I, I vividly remember um, uh, the air raids and the, and the sound of the glass smashing when, the, when, when a bomb fell nearby and the feeling of being, you know, in the blitz, if you like, of it being... Of being, you know, uh, it was very vulnerable. So, so, I'm, so I'm to very, help you empathise yeah. for people in the Ukraine at the moment. Oh yes, that. very much oh. so, very much so. I mean, actually, when all that began, and I found it unexpectedly triggering all sorts of memories of my own, um, which was, well, yes, absolutely. I mean, that. Fe- I mean, of course, I know how lucky we were and how different it was for us because we could leave um, and we I remember very vividly getting on the plane that holiday to come home again and the extraordinary feeling of relief when the plane took off finally and in those days everyone would smoke on aeroplanes and everybody just started smoking because they were so relieved the plane had taken off everyone was had escaped danger and we were on our way 
Well, so, you know, because they, they had been targeting airports and so on. But so, you know, I do remember, I mean, it did really, I did feel feel for um, in a very visceral way. Or that, that people Was that very much the beginning of the art of escape, a moment of escape that had great mm. significance to you as a child? Yes, I think so, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. And in fact, just um, the very first time we left, if, if you like, the time we were leaving and I knew it was for good, I have a very clear memory of the lift doors of our apartment closing and then the business of getting on the plane was quite complicated because you weren't really supposed to take things with you. You know, you weren't supposed to take valuables and so on with you. And so that was all rather fraught. My mum, you know, wanted to take um, a few belongings uh, with her and had secreted them away. And and, and I wrote a poem about that. But I remember that the kind of fear, um, the feeling of, you know, trepidation as we finally managed to get through customs onto the plane. So that, I suppose, was the... The art of escape. I mean, not everybody w- managed it. And, and when you came to England, obviously there must have been a period of adjustment and also not having any possessions and things like that. Did that make you, you, you relish good things? Yes, uh, absolutely. In a big way, I mean, you know, I, as a child. Absolutely. I remember um, being very cross as a, as a little girl that my mum had given all our toys to the local hospital for the children because we couldn't take them with us anymore. I had a particular, I was, I had a particular attachment to a giant turtle I had, and I was very cross my mum had given the turtle to the children I mean I, I looking back I think it was absolutely the right thing to do the children benefited from my toys but I couldn't understand it when I was five why we couldn't take our toys with us and um, certainly when, when I I mean I did bring a few things it's true but um, and a lot of their possessions were locked in storage for many years we couldn't bring them with us I remember some some furniture my mum had been given when she got married which was quite old and that wasn't allowed out of the country because it was an antique so I remember it was all wrapped and ready to go and then someone official came and said you can't take it with you because it's an antique and you're not allowed to take antiques out so I do remember that feeling and also being very scared when I saw policemen in this country I used to flinch when I saw policemen because I think I had a fear of those sorts of uniformed authority figures um, from my experience as a kid just I just um, so for a while I got nervous, but then can, can we read the wasp and the migrant because those sure. two? Um, very, I mean, I, th- I think they're very powerful um, um, poems. Um, the wasp particularly struck me as um, a, a lovely um, poem, which kind of um, which kind of has a, a resonance of that in it. Sure, yeah. No, I, I wanted to think about um, escape on different scales. You know, the, the 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 wasp and the human scale, and think about what happened when we looked at them in the same way, if you like. Um, well, this is, this is about, um, well, shall, shall I just read it? Yes, the wasp who makes no honey gave us ink. In early spring, oak galls appear, darkening in autumn, they gestate. Emerging into English light, this tiny emigrant was smuggled in Aleppo oak, an alien acorn well I was I was trying to imagine what it was like to be one of these tiny wasps that smuggled itself into the country in an oak gall and what it's like you know to come out of the gall to open your eyes um, if wasps have eyes I think they have eyes in in this new light um, so yeah and a strange place as well a strange <laughs> place a strange place and yeah, so pe- people would bring this oak gall in to make ink, actually. Yeah. Um, it was the, one of the early, early 
um, sources of ink, oak gall, and the, and the particular oak was also brought into the country. Now grows here, in fact, Aleppo oak, but mm. it was also a, um, um, an immigrant um, immigrant um, species. Okay, okay. the migrant. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, this one poem, Migrants, was actually inspired by a film I watched of Sarah Wood, who's a, a local filmmaker in Cambridge, and... Um, and, and Helen MacDonald, they made a film about bird watching um, and um, and spy culture, and it was a, it was a very powerful film. And anyway, it inspired this poem. One of the details from this poem, um, I think, it's almost a quotation from the film. In fact, migrants. They shot them in the fields. Skylarks that sung to Nazis are not welcome here. Territories of the heart contract as music's mapped, song flights flesh-bound and distressed, a small brown bird in alien corn. I think um, there was it, the film. In the film, they explained that uh, around the time of, of uh, the Second World War, it was discovered that skylarks had migrated into the fields in Norfolk, and so there was a animosity towards these poor uh, skylarks who'd come from enemy territory. Um, there's lots of comparisons between kind of people um, and yeah. animals mm. and the forces of nature in your work, which I like very, very much. Yeah. Um, as an essayist, you concentrate on things like awkward mess, weeds and rudeness, don't you? Um, why is that? Well, I suppose it must be something to do with the fact of being interested in things that don't quite fit in at some level, either stylistically in a poem, words that don't quite fit in that create a kind of awkwardness. Um, a lot of it... And this, uh, a lot of it comes out of my interest in the poet John Clare, who's a, a the, um, romantic or 19th century nature poet from just down the, just down the road, I suppose, Northamptonshire uh, poet. And he, he, the, he the, there's something kind of deliciously awkward, in, artfully awkward, I should say, in, in, in some of his poems, where he brings in words from different social words and they rub up against each other, creating interesting effects. So I suppose I'm, I'm interested in the different ways in which awkwardness might be artful or mess might produce something delicate and beautiful. So, yeah, um, and I'm in, yeah, those are some of the essays I've written. I've written a, a study of Claire and, yeah, it's very much inspired my poetry too, his interest in the natural world and, and in his kind of keen-eared and keen-eyed observation of the natural world as an eye for detail, his ear for detail, has, and, for, and for small things which are not always celebrated by poems, the awkward detail, yeah. um, the, the grasshop, uh, the, the um, woodpecker's red tongue. Poets don't usually talk about the red tongue of the woodpecker or the strange sounds certain other birds make when they flop through the sky, the heron. You do focus in mm. on these details. Can we mm. read Octopi? Oh, sure. I, I'd like to read oh. that poem, which I like sure. very much as well. Octopi. Oh, yes. This was actually inspired by a French filmmaker called Jean Palavet, who makes amazing sort of surreal documentary movies about octopi. There's a great film called The Love Life of the Octopus, which I... The Love Life of the Octopus, which I really recommend people watch. I think it's available on... You can find it on YouTube and so on. But anyway, his very strange... Um, slightly surreal documentaries about sea creatures really inspired me and I think this may be where this poem uh, um, came from, if you like. Um, 
Octopi. There are cephalopods alive today. Enormous creatures have been photographed, but none has ventured to the coast excepting as a carcass until now. Classified with oysters, zoologically, they have an eye that is mammalian, almost human. Its colour changes reveal intimate feelings. Red for anger, black for envy, blue for fear. Its eyelids give a sensitive and varied look, not like that horror-struck expression of a fish whose two round eyes are fixed. Nature um, seems to um, captivate you Mm. and you manage to convey um, experience in a crystal clear way Mm. um, which is something that people have said about you. Um, Has examining nature or examining things very closely always fascinated you and has it been a gift of yours do you think? Well it's true that I've always found the natural world um, fascinating and I spent a lot of time daydreaming and and as well as observing uh, yeah yes um, the natural world has always been a source of excitement and and delight for me and the strange things and you know the stranger side of nature too I mean the the way in which I remember vividly as a child thinking that if you chopped an ant in half you'd get two ants and I I remember the horror I felt when I realised this wasn't the case. And uh, I, I think someone had told me earthworms, you get two if you chop them in half. So, no, so I remember examining the nat- natural creatures, the natural world, in a sort of almost scientific kind of forensic way as a child, paying very close attention. And I'm afraid not always... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry well, about what, the ants. What's your take on ecological issues? Because it's something that you wanted to look at differently. Yes. You wanted to, to step away from all the clichés about it. Is that to make more impact um, on um, ecological issues? What is your take on that? Well, I do... Th- I, I, I think I very strongly uh, feel that if we pay more attention, uh, proper, full attention to the world around us, to the natural world... That can only be a good thing. I think too many people... To value it in a heartfelt way. Yes, to, exactly. To evaluate in a heartfelt way, to pay attention and also to, um, to pay attention to it with all our senses, with our sight, with our smell, with our hearing and our touch, to really... And therefore to realise that we are very much embodied creatures, that we are part of the world, not just cerebral and not just abstracted in the world of, you know, mobile phones and computers and so on, that to re-embody, um, to feel ourselves as part of a natural world and to feel that, that we are part of a much larger uh, scheme of things and pattern of things really important to me. And I think if we are to, uh, if we were to, if we do that, uh, to, to attend to the natural world with respect, then... I think I hope we treat it better, and I hope then it would treat us better. You seem to um, intimate, um, to a certain extent, a, a, a mourning for a for a dying world, both um, both naturally and and socially in some well, in some I, way. You know, I mean, it's true. I mean, this very hot summer has certainly made made me, re, you know, aware of what's happening in 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 the, with the climate and in the world. And I, but I do also think that. I do also have faith in the resilience of of the natural world and the way in which people, plants, creatures adapt to environmental change. And I do I do think it's worth remembering the mess, the hopefulness of that that all sorts of um, creatures can live in the most extreme sorts of circumstance. We shouldn't lose hope. I think we shouldn't lose hope, and we should 
take courage and, and inspiration from the creatures and plants that live in the most extreme circumstances on the edge of a volcano in the deep sea vents in the hot in the hottest places on earth and also in the coldest places on earth so i think it's too easy to say we, we lose hope because yeah. Uh, dropping down from that oh. into a somber mood, and oh. there were two great poems: <laughs> okay. "Rat Man" and, and "Appetite," oh. which which um, which, um, oh. which also um, use animals and natural yes. things in another way to express kind of emotions. Yep. The Rat Man. We did meet a, a wonderful Rat Man who was. Um, we we had a rat. We lived on Kingston Street in um, just off Mill Road. Went for a while, and unfortunately, things started disappearing in that house, including a chilli plant, some flip-flops and nappies and bits of the floor. And then we came to realise there was a rat, as we we hoped it was just one, and we had to call the rat man. And he was an extremely enlightened and um, a, uh, interesting man who came from the council to uh, deal with our rat. And he came a couple of times. And um, anyway, he the visit of the rat man inspired the poem, but also... I think he told us that the rat man from uh, who visited that he enjoyed watching um, films of um, the Rat Temple in Rajasthan. So all of this poem is actually based, as many of my poems are, on facts mm-hmm. and uh, and real encounters with people and, and and information in the world. So here's the rat man. The rat man inspected the evidence, gnawed floorboards, holes, what remained of a chili plant nothing but a pale green stump. He explained the pros and cons of poison, glue, a snapping trap. We pictured a determined rat, single, hungry, brownish-grey. The rat man finished his tea. He was dreaming of the rat goddess in her temple in Rajasthan, its ancient marble pillars and solid silver doors. Appetite. I have to say, this is not based on a real encounter. Mm. Appetite. For weeks it sulked, rejected all my offerings, the mice, the meat, the long-tailed rat. Even the rabbit failed to stir its appetite. One night I woke to find it stretched along the length of me, rigid and quite still. It looked across the bed unblinkingly. I knew at once the snake would have to go. From head to head and tip of tail to toe, my ambitious pet was sizing its next meal. And that has a wonderful theme of obviously feeding snakes, but it's also yes. about phobias, isn't it? To yes. a certain extent, it's about phobias and, and perhaps mm. an appeasement of something that can't be appeased. Is that, is that, is that, is that I haven't thought of that, uh, actually, but I think, that, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, yes, I think you're, you're right. There's something um, more to do with the subconscious definitely going on and, and about fear and about how to deal with fear, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, and trying to, and trying, to make, trying to make something trying to make a sort of lighter, more playful um, poem about something that might be quite frightening. In other poems like um, The Limits of Imagining, you think about the universe. And, oh, yes. and perhaps I think a lot of people are thinking about um, the universe. I mean, obviously it's great in Cambridge because we've got the astronomy labs and you can actually go yes. and look at it for yourself if you're lucky. Um, but it's all this business of trying to 
um, uh, um, take ownership of this kind of stepping off the planet, to yes. take ownership of the of the, the world that we're actually living in, yeah. um, and also finding ways of a kind of emotionally relating to um, the vastness of it. Now, in your next book, um, Scale, um, you're looking at. at all of these things, you know, the, the, the epic scale of the universe, yes. um, stars and things like that. Can you tell me a little bit about what's in that one? Yeah, sure. I mean, in fact, it was inspired by a visit to the Institute of Astronomy on Muddingley Road, mm -hmm. which, which is a wonderful place. Um, and the library at the top of that building, which contains um, star maps, a, 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 a kind of old maps of the heavens, and, I, and a visit to the... And it was just... It, extraordinary to see these very beautiful ornate drawn maps of the southern hemisphere and I was uh, fascinated by the, the, all the different constellations that we tend not to think about because we don't see them here like the peacock and so on um, and that got me thinking really about the stars and about the distance of stars and about the way in which um, well stars the strangenesses of stars really and, and the way in which what seems to be very fixed in the heavens and we use stars of course Polaris and so on to guide us um, when we're lost and yet the stars themselves are disappearing are dying and they're not all, we, we often see them years later after they've died out some of the stars so the strange sense of um, permanence which with which we associate the stars and yet the fact that they're not permanent that we see them um, so so lo uh, there's a time lag between um, the stars and us so it got me thinking a lot about um, yeah the, the, so the, in a way thinking about the stars and how to conceive and how to how to how to how we use the stars to map map our own um, our own fears also our own futures uh, and also to to track our journeys and the ways in which we use the stars to guide us and yet the strange ephemerality in fact of the stars themselves I don't have a consumer of these kind of um, uh, uh, space agency photographs of the planets and do, the telescope yes. images and things like the, that the new ones I'm finding quite overwhelming actually I mean I, I just the Hubble ones um, were I, I could just about understand but these new ones that is it the web ones the, the ones that have just come out recently I, I find just I can't I, I, I look at them but then I think I prefer to look at the night sky with the naked eye, to be honest with you. I can just about manage the big dip <laughs> when I look myself. So, so it's your, it seems to me that in your book, Ask for Escape, you're looking at things in a macro, in a micro way. Yes. Um, you, you look for lots of things, mm. experiences to fuel your writing. Yes. Um, and, then, um, and then you produce this wonderful um, imagery, pungent image, images of one sort or another. And I, I very much like The Ice Ship, which seems to be a nice... Oh. Perhaps we could read that one. Um, and then Thank in your you. new book, you're, you're looking at the more macro things in terms of moving from small scale yes. to large scale. Is that what's happening with the emphasis? Yes, I, I wanted to move across scales in the new book between um, the tiniest creature like the millipede, but also the constellations. And the, the book kind of moves between um, scales, size scales like that, between the tiny and, and, the, and the vast. But it also moves between different time scales so at different historical depending on the scale historical scale we use the scale of time certain creatures might be 
uh, reclassified. For example, the hippo would be native in Cambridge if we looked at it with a very long lens because they, they did, in fact, live in Barrington hippos. And you can see the skeleton in the museum here. But so, so it moves between... So I was interested in the question of, you know, at what scale of time is something native uh, and or not native? Daffodils didn't used to be native. Parakeets weren't native until quite recently um, but so, so it moves between l- small and large between a historical far distance deep time and nearer time and also thinks about scales of temperature um, as well so it's, it's trying to move across and between different scales and try to think about how doing that we can reconfigure um, our ways of looking at things in a way. Yeah. Can, we, can we hear the eye ship? Oh, sure. That one was actually inspired by a conversation with a taxi driver in London <laughs> who told me that, which I didn't know, that north, um, that old fishmongers always face north because people didn't have ice until, you know, quite recently, um, freezers, I mean, and they, they would buy ice from these ice ships. So it was quite a precious thing to have ice. And so the fish, they didn't want it to melt. Anyway, it wasn't just about ice, obviously, but that's what inspired it, the conversation. I'm very grateful to that taxi driver. Um, uh, Ice ship. At night, the heavy ice ship docked, packed tight with its cargo of compacted fossil snow. Towards morning, it'll glisten through windows of polished glass. Fishmonger panes rubbed bright with vinegar and newspaper rags. Sunlight silvers through... Picking sequin herring scales, lifting like a pattern out of frost. Crabs are the only living things waiting on the silent ice. Fish eyes are glassed over. Codgills bloom black-red. The cross-eyed, long-fanged conger eel is heavy now and still. Secretly, the lobster has given up the ghost, suspended far from home, buried in quartz ice waiting to blossom to molten pearl and vanish, quicksilver to air. Over the North Sea sunrise sits, heavy as oil slick, or a blessing. So those were some absolutely wonderful poems from Art and Escape, which is um, Mila Gorgi's um, first book. Her second book is called Scale, um, and it's coming out this month. The publisher is Karkaled. Scale. The map reveals so many stars, two constellations in the shape of bears, a peacock, Parvo, in the southern hemisphere, the spaces between galaxies, the emptiness, the not-quite-emptiness, it doesn't show, the single atom, H, in every cubic metre, the atom that is not quite still, how cold it is between the galaxies, the snowdrops, in the garden, the morning after frost. Mina Gorgi, thank you very much indeed for talking to Cambridge 105. It's been most interesting. Thank you very much, Simon. Thanks for having me. You could be forgiven for not knowing what imposter syndrome is. Well, it's having doubts about your own validity and credibility and a feeling that you shouldn't be here and the need to escape. But the great thing about it is that if you suffer from it, I'm told, you can spot imposters around you easily. I've been talking to a kinesthetic artist who delivers political messages in his work using animate models, who's recently been focusing on Boris Johnson, who he says was possibly the ultimate imposter. 
Chris Dobrowolski has also completed an artist in residency with the British Antarctic Survey at the South Pole and his intriguing work has been enjoyed by assistive penguins, fur seals as well as researchers working on the snow cap. His installations can be quite large scale and puzzlingly sophisticated with one taking up an entire farm barn area and including live pigs and moving models of British politicians made from dolls shooting around a vast scale electrics tracks on, on the top of model cars. They deliver an array of veiled messages that can be a little hard to follow at times but that certainly fascinate the onlooker's eye. Here's Chris at the recent Hotbed Festival at the Junction, just before presenting his show entitled What is the Truth But a Lie Agreed Upon? What is the truth but a lie agreed upon? A famous quote from Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche, of course, uh, was uh, the go-to philosopher for Nazis. I was making a piece of artwork with a toy bus in it, and I was looking for an appropriate line to go on the side of it. So after I went for a lot of quotes, that's the one I hit upon. What's your background? How did you become an artist? I became an artist because I drifted into what's called used to be called foundation a foundation course when I was nineteen, and then really enjoyed it. Uh, then I went away to art college in Hull, and like a lot of people in those days, art college was your first time away from home. I think I was a bit depressed, and I built a boat from driftwood to try and sail away, escape from art college. But obviously, it was such an interesting experience, I ended up finding, finding a way of working that actually engaged me, and that's where I started to become quite passionate about what I do. Now, escapism and escaping is quite a theme in your work, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so, I mean, well, I, I call it escape. I think a friend of mine once said, uh, is it escaping, though? You sound more like running away, like little kids when they're looking for attention. So that's up for debate. I mean, I, I guess what I do, when I say I escape, it's, uh, it's something that's open to interpretation. You know, sometimes it's like physically escaping, but then that physical escape is uh, maybe symbolic of something else. What is the Hotbed Theatre Festival and why are you involved in it? Okay, so the Hotbed Theatre Festival is a platform for people, for writers and performers to try stuff out. It's very much an emphasis on work in progress. Uh, when you do some, make, write a performance or a play, obviously it changes a great deal and you get a different feel for what it's like when you actually finally work and, you know, bouncing off of an audience. So, you know, I think... <laughs> Personally speaking, I imagine after tomorrow when I've done this thing that I will be uh, changing quite a lot uh, or never doing it again. So um, how would you define yourself? Uh, right, a f <laughs> an imposter. Because <laughs> obviously yeah, my, my background is in visual arts. Uh, like I said, I went to art college, I make stuff and I've kind of drifted into performance <laughs> In the same way I drifted into art college, uh, there's a sort of tradition as an art, a visual artist where you often get invited into art colleges to do a, a slide talk about your work to art students. Uh, normally art, artists are quite shy doing that. I quickly discovered that when I stood there at the front of a lecture theatre talking about my favourite subject myself, I quite enjoyed the attention and over the years I've kind of like polished and embellished all of the stories about the things I've made and the why I've made them and then they've become a th an entity in their own so now I do these performance lectures. What is imposter syndrome exactly? I, well I can't use the term imposter syndrome, um, I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not obviously not a specialist on it, I just feel like um, <laughs> I shouldn't be here. <laughs> 
<laughs> really? Uh, I think the first time I went on, the first time I had to go on stage, I spent all day with the technician arranging the lights so that I could stand in the right place and be lit. And then that evening we did the show, I walked on stage and the light was in my eyes and I just kept walking and walking until I could see again and I could see the audience. So I wasted that poor, te- poor technician's whole afternoon. <laughs> It sounds like you, you get a bit at sixes and sevens when you're doing this. Yeah. But you, you, you build intriguing installations. Now, yes. How did they all begin and what are they really concerned with? Well, like I said, the first one was when I was an art student. It, was a, it wasn't so much an installation, it was a physical thing, a boat that I got into. And now, I don't make these big vehicles anymore because I've got nowhere to put them. Uh, and now I've gone the complete other way and I work with small toys, lots of matchbox toy cars and stuff like that. And some of these things you, you've taken to um, the Antarctic with the British Antarctic Survey. Yeah. Um, so so you, you, you whizzed all the way down to the Antarctic. You took a lot of things with you there. And um, you did art as uh, an artist in residence down there. Yeah, so the main part of that project was to make another vehicle. In that case, it was a, a sledge out of gold picture frames. But I also took along with me lots of what I called Antarctic toys. So the thing about like a, a toy car is obviously, you know, a toy car, for example, isn't a real car. It's an unreal pretend car. But the Antarctic has this way of authenticating uh, the most banal of objects. So something quite rudimentary suddenly becomes special because it's been to the Antarctic. It's like going to the moon. So what I, this little thing that I was playing with was I said I'm going to take pretend Antarctic things. So that's everything from plastic penguins to like a little toy snowmobile and things like this. Uh, take them to the Antarctic, photograph them there so that when I brought them back they became real pretend Antarctic things. The whole time I was there I'd fill, I'd fill my pockets full of toys and in case we saw the real version like a, a Tucker snowcat for example, obviously lots of penguins, fur seals, things like that. Um, uh, you've also um, written a book called Escape. Yeah. Um, what's, what's in the book? What's the synopsis? So the book Escape starts with the scenario I was talking about as being an art student trying to escape from art college in Hull in a boat made of driftwood. Then I tell this whole story about a pedal car, uh, a hovercraft. So the hovercraft was made out of plastic bottles that I found on the beach. And it goes for a tank and an aeroplane and then the last chapter is all about going to the Antarctic. Another thing I wanted to ask you was, um, I mean, having had a look at some of your installations, they're, they're pretty off-the-wall things, um, and they're, they're quite interesting. I was having a look at all of those videos of, of your um, various things, and, and um, uh, why, why is Boris Johnson so important to you? Because you've depicted him as um, a blonde doll in a suit um, going around <laughs> a scale electrics track being towed by three Italian job minis yeah. um, in a large warehouse with um, pigs wandering <laughs> around on the floor um, and various other things in it. Um, how did those kind of installations come to you and what are they supposed to signify? Okay, so um, the thing with Boris, I mean obviously I'm sure Boris Johnson uh, was a, it was something that figured in everyone's lives up until recently or maybe still. For me, what I thought was curious about Boris Johnson is that well, we all know that kind of like, he kind of like pretends to be a bumbling idiot, but is he a bumbling idiot? Is it an act? And I kind of realised at one point when I, you know, I stand in front and do these performance lectures and I tell these stories and it's kind of like 
you know, I, the, you kind of win over the audience. It's an act where you win over the audience by being an inoffensive, uh, kind of like... Um, when I saw, realised that Boris Johnson did the same thing, you know, I kind of felt it was something cynical. So in a lot of ways, this show is about addressing your own kind of... Is this one imposter spotting another one? I think that might be. I think you might have hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> Now, now, you ended up um, at, at one point in Mussolini's hometown of Prodapo in Italy. Yeah. Now, how did that happen? So, one of the performance lectures I did was all about my family car. My parents bought this Triumph Herald brand new when uh, my mum was pregnant with me. And, of course, I was emotionally attached to this car and could never part with it. Uh, and I kept it going right up until I was about 40. Uh, the other interesting thing about... My family, I, my, my, my dad particularly, was that he was in Italy in the war. Triumph Herald was d- d- actually designed by an Italian. Uh, the family connection was that my dad went was in the Italian campaign. And uh, I got this project together, which was about fixing the family car, driving to, first of all, uh, Turin, to turn up on the doorstep of the person that designed the car. And then we had to go and find all of these other places that my dad had been in the war. So it was a case, we got a family photo album of like me as a baby in front of this car. And it was kind of taking those co- pictures of this cosy world to this place where my dad had all these horrible, life-threatening experiences. One of the places he went to was Prodapio. That's the birthplace of Mussolini. Krista Robolski, thank you very much indeed for talking to Cambridge 105. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's quite some time since teacher and former Oxford University student Emily Davidson threw herself in front of King George V's horse at Epsom Derby in 1913 and was tragically killed in the name of women's suffrage, but it hit an eternal nerve in the public psyche. The militant action of suffragists led by Emmeline Pankhurst and the popularity of Virginia Woolf's feminist writings marked a turning point in the history of women and much of the movement started among students at Girton and Newnham Colleges in Cambridge. Virginia Woolf and many other women didn't feel that the First World War was at all a bad thing for women because for the first time it provided a platform for women to find new opportunities and enter real careers previously denied to them, and it broke the mould of suppression when finally they won the vote after over a million women had been employed in a range of challenging wartime jobs. There was no turning the tide back. Scientific historian, emeritus fellow of Clare College and award-winning author Patricia Farrer took time out to talk about her book A Lab of One's Own, Science and Suffrage in the First World War, which I discovered was a riveting history of the interplay between class, gender, science and power. What did you hope to do when you wrote this book? Well, I just wanted to show how many women there were who were working in very high-powered jobs during the war. And it's such a common assumption that all the men were doing the science and all the men, all the women were doing all the menial jobs. And that wasn't completely true. There were some women right at the top in laboratory research and they were, a lot of them were travelling abroad and undergoing the most arduous conditions. Now, you've actually won an award for this book. I Tell have. me about that. The Cambridgeshire Association for Local History, Local Book Awards 2019. So it, it, it is obviously worth reading because you've, you've won this award for it. First of all, there's a big local connection to this because Cambridge was tremendously important in terms of women's suffrage in 1908, wasn't it? Well, it, Cambridge was important for suffrage and, of course, there were two biggest universities where women were able to go at that time were Oxford and Cambridge, although women couldn't grow graduate officially from Cambridge University till 1948, which is really late. 
Now, they could actually do courses, but they had to get their, their degrees from Ireland or somewhere else, didn't they? Well, yeah, or else they just got a certificate in the post. So officially they didn't graduate. And then in 1998, it was the 50th anniversary of 1948, and there was a big procession through the middle of Cambridge, and a lot of women came back who should have had their degrees 50 years earlier. So it was a, that was a wonderful event. Now, who were the initial group of women in Cambridge, and what were they doing? Well, there were two groups. One was at Newnham and one was at Girton, but I think the Newnham one was the biggest. It's the one that you hear most about. And it was run by a woman who later became Ray Strachey. So she was part of the Bloomsbury set. She married into the Virginia Woolfs and the Lytton Strachey's and all those people. And she came to Newnham to read mathematics. I don't think she did very much mathematics because she was busy playing cricket and running the suffrage organisation in Newnham and then they joined together with Girton to have a joint association and they went on loads of marches and organised demonstrations. Now these were well brought up, educated hockey playing women weren't they? Oh they were, extremely. And I think it's very important to make a distinction between suffragists and suffragettes. Suffragette was a rather derogatory term that was invented by the Daily Mail and what it described was women who undertook violent action like chaining themselves to the railings or throwing bricks through windows or the woman who threw herself in front of a horse at the Epsom Derby and a lot of other women even though they supported the suffrage movement very much looked down on the adoption of violence in that way. So there were various different groups of women. Unsurprisingly, women are half of the population and they don't always think in the same way. So there were suffragists and there were suffragettes and there were also women who weren't, who were neither. And there were also women who were pacifists and women who were quite militant. So there were very diverse sets of opinions. And they did things like wearing quasi-masculine clothing, didn't they? And things like that, which was outrageous. Well, some of them did when they fighting in the armed forces when they were in the army or the navy. They quite rightly, mm. I think thought that they should be treated properly and wear the same uniform as the men because they were going out to fight and to defend their country. But a lot of the men objected to that and thought that khaki should be reserved for men and they accused the women of just sort of flirting and basically being prostitutes and they just wanted to go out there and be with the men and have sex and have a whole load of fun. When in fact these women were absolutely dedicated and a lot of them died. They were really out there doing doing their stuff for Britain. And what about um, Virginia Woolf and the Bloomsbury set, who are obviously still um, tremendously interesting to the whole of Cambridge academia at the moment? You know? Well, I find it very surprising that more people haven't written books about Rachel Costello and her sister Karen. Because Rachel Costello was the one who went to Cambridge and Newnham and studied maths. And her sister, Karen, married one of Virginia Woolf's brothers, and Rachel married one of Lytton Strachey's brothers. So they were right at the centre of those two big families, the Strachey's and the Stevenson's. Uh, they didn't think very much of the Bloomers. In fact, the loathing was rather mutual. Rachel Strachey sort of wrote in a letter back home to her mother that Virginia Woolf and her friends went round climbing on the sofas, barking like dogs, and she said... They don't seem to do very much. And then on the other side, Virginia Woolf thought that Strachey was rather 
dowdy and serious and plain. So there was a sort of mutual antipathy, but they were right at the centre of the Bloomsbury Circle. Now, Virginia Woolf saw the First World War as a tremendous opportunity for women, didn't she? She didn't think it was a bad thing at all. Well, one of the things she complained about was the difficulty of getting the servants, because, of course, it used to be quite easy to get servants. And, and then, un- understandably, these young women objected to working incredibly hard and long hours. They far preferred to go off to the munitions factories, even though it was dangerous, and earn some money for under, silk underwear and perfume and makeup and nice clothes. And Virginia Woolf thought that was a terrible thing. So did a lot of other upper-class women. They thought these young women shouldn't be in the factories, they should be at home looking after them. But the women were tremendously important to the war effort. Um, what were the general um, attitudes towards them when they started appearing in all of those and supportive roles, because they were mocked to some degree, weren't they? Well, they were mocked, and also, um, particularly after the war, there was a huge resurgence of opinion against them, saying that they should stop working and leave all the jobs to the men, and there were um, there was the assumption that they were incompetent. There was also one of my favourite women, I think because she suffered so much, was a woman called Helen Gwynne Vaughan. And she was head of the Auxiliary Army Corps in France. So she's very, very high up. And then when she came back, she was head of the biology laboratory at Birkbeck College in the University of London. And she was constantly criticised for being authoritarian. Now, she was head of department. Heads of department have to tell people what to do. I'm sure if she'd been a man, she would have been called authoritative rather than authoritarian. And there was this constant entrenched resentment that these women had to fight against. It was a million women who were needed in the end, which is an extraordinary... Broke women out of a mould, didn't it? A huge number of them. Absolutely. There, There were women who went overseas, the largest percentage of women worked in the munitions factory, and that is hugely underrated as a, a dangerous way of contributing to the war. We have, there's enormous celebration, for, rightly, for all the men who died on the battlefield under horrible circumstances. But a lot of these women became very sick. They were called canaries because their hair went green, their face went yellow, so they were publicly shunned. Quite a lot of them died. Even those who didn't die suffered from serious intestinal illnesses for a long time after the war. So we should remember that women weren't just getting the cushy jobs, they were doing this real tough stuff as well. What was Lloyd George's stance on on women in the workplace and the suffragists? Oh, Lloyd George really welcomed the women, uh, particularly after he became Minister of Munitions in, I think it was 1915, I think. He became Minister of Munitions and he rallied support um, to encourage these women. He he allowed um, some female suffragists to come on a march down down uh, one of the big streets in London and he welcomed them at the Houses of Parliament and said what a marvellous contribution they were making to the country. Were women actually running some of these factories and not getting any credit for it? Uh, A very few women were running factories but mostly, the vast majority, were in subservient positions. What there were, women were running, was hospitals overseas in places like Serbia on the Eastern Front. I mean, during the commemorations of the First World War, we heard so much about the Western Front, but there were women out in uh, on the East and also in on the Italian Front. And there were doctors and nurses 
out there running female-only medical units in these very, very dangerous places and undergoing the most appalling conditions. It was freezing and snowing in the winter. It was boiling hot in the summer. There was typhoid and malaria and they had uh, very, very insanitary working conditions. And these women stayed out there for years. Some of them even stayed out after the war because in very remote parts of Eastern Europe, none of the local villagers had had any medical care for years and so they were doing operations which now would be quite ordinary like uh, correcting club feet or removing growths uh, or um, cleft pa- uh, correcting cleft palates. Things like that which were taken as standard in the West weren't happening there and these women stayed out there and performed these operations. And what about pay and recognition? Because some of them became quite senior but they weren't recognised, were they? The women as a standard got two-thirds of the pay for doing the same job as a man. That continued after the war and also if a woman should get married she was no longer allowed to be a teacher or a doctor or a civil servant or anything like that. She had to resign. So how did um, class, gender and science interplay? Because this book is very much about the importance of science, isn't it? It is. I mean, unfortunately, um, just as a lot of women had always been excluded from science, the majority, but by no means all, the women who went to university to study science, most of them came from a fairly wealthy background because, of course, there weren't the grants and things that, that we used to have. Although uh, so, some young women did manage to win scholarships. So mostly the women who were at the top in science tended to come from rather wealthy middle-class families. Now, the vote was obviously the key issue Mm. for women, that they wanted the vote um, desperately badly. Um, What kind of things did they do in order to try and secure the vote? One of the things they did before the war was to go on uh, many marches and demonstrations, and there was always particular support from onlookers for the women who were graduates. They used to march in their full sort of university gear and they always got huge rounds of applause. But I think the important thing that they did was once the war started, all of them, whether they were suffragettes or suffragists, they all decided they were going to stop campaigning for the vote because the war was far more important. And that decision, I think, arguably won them more support than all the marches and demonstrations Uh, that there'd been before. But of course, after the war, they didn't all get the vote. Only women over 30 got the vote because the government thought, probably correctly, that they were more likely to support the government policy uh, of giving all the available jobs to the men rather than to the women. Now, what were the prevailing notions of the differences between the sexes? Because obviously those stereotypes were absolutely um, uh, restricting women completely, weren't they? Well, I think... Cambridge has got a lot to answer for because Cambridge University produced Charles Darwin and I know he was writing in the middle to late 19th century but his views still prevailed and his basic argument was that men have evolved to be different from women and men's role is to do all the building the houses and hunting the animals and fighting the wars. And women have been selected over millennia of generations. Women have been selected in order to look after the children and do the cooking and looking after the house. And he maintained there was a 
fundamental difference both between men and women and also uh, between Europeans and people from other parts of the world. They also didn't believe that women could be creative, did they? Well, they could, didn't believe that women could be creative in the same way as men. Mm. No, they, um, women are very good at imitating and copying, but no, they don't really have... Uh, even women, Mary Somerville, one of the great scientists of the 19th century, said herself that women have not got genius. That quality is not given to the female sex. Tell me about Virginia Woolf and A Room of My Own. Um, that was a key um, text. Why is it so important? Um, I think one of the things I personally found very interesting was that she had, she's got a sequence in it uh, where she sort of imagines reading novels and she's reading a novel about two women called, I think they were called Olivia and Chloe, who were both scientists and they're working in a research laboratory. Now she based that on a real life friend of hers and this Dr Vaughan was the woman who set up the blood transfusion service in London and also during the Second World War she uh, she was there when um, Belson concentration camp was opened. So she was based on a real life story about a woman that she, woman that she knew. Why is science and suffrage so connected? Bec well they're not always connected. Marie Curie is the most famous scientist of that period and she was not a supporter of suffrage. I think because suffragists were looking to the future and science is also looking to the future, one of the things that they particularly looked at were electrical inventions like vacuum cleaners and stoves and electric kettles, which sort of might sound as though women are being tied to the domestic sphere, but actually the idea was to make women's lives much easier so they didn't have to do all that cooking and cleaning, you could just get the vacuum cleaner out. And of course they needed that because all the servants had disappeared so they had to look after themselves. Um, a lot of the population, women were regarded as best, uh, by the society, as at best unintelligent breeding machines. Um, that was a quotation that I just picked up in the book, which, which um, seems to me to be um, it's encapsulating the kind of views that people uh, uh, took. Outrageous. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this was Darwinian evolutionary theory right in the middle yeah. of the House of Commons. Yeah. And what the, um, they were debating the suffrage question in the House of Commons, and one of the MPs said... An adult white woman differs far more from a white man than a negress or pygmy woman from her equivalent male. The education, the mental disposition of a white or Asiatic woman reeks of sex. Her modesty, her decorum is not to ignore sex, but to refine and put a point to it. Her costume is clamorous with the distinctive elements of her form. And those was, words were spoken by an MP, but he was actually quoting H.G. Wells, one of our most famous novelists. So uh, it's a marvellous quotation because it's so, so obnoxious in terms both of gender and of ethnicity. I mean, it's this sort of double whammy quotation. It's just awful. Um, and Darwin made, uh, uh, um, Darwinian differences made equality scientifically impossible by natural law, and that the highest evolved form of, of man was the white male Englishman. 
Um, that was another. Um, that was the, the other view about men, wasn't it? That, 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 that they were somehow the Englishmen were um, a guru sub. You know, well, uh, 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 well Englishmen, of course, are better than anybody else. But also, there was a big problem if they were sort of setting up scales of people. You definitely European men, especially English one, ones. European men were superior to African ones, for example. Um, and men were superior to women. So then there was a bit of a problem about whether you put European women above or below African men. And there were differences of opinion about that, about whether class, uh, gender trumps ethnicity. OK, so um, what else were the suffragists facing? Um, and what was the frustrated spinster argument and what part did it play? Oh, well, of course, during the war, far more men were killed than women. So af after the war, there were roughly nine women for every eight men, which meant that some women inevitably never got married. And there was um, a lot of them felt very, very resentful. And it was um, they were looked down on not only by other men, by, but also by other women. Whereas, of course, now we don't feel like that at all. I mean, a woman can lead a very fulfilling life without getting married. Now, suffragists were often thought of to be um, actually crazy. I mean, it's sort of slightly like terrorism now. I mean, if you throw yourself in front of a horse at the Derby or if you uh, make assassination attempts, which some of those women did. Mm. And now, now what, was, um, what was H.G. Wells saying in terms of um, social commentary? Because we've just read that extract. You know, what, how, how's, how, how is he important? Well, he's, he was very much in favour of women's education and women's work, but he he did rather have the idea that women should get a salary if they had children, um, they should be paid paid so that they had an independent means of existence. Though there was a lot of concern about the falling population and great, con especially after the war, and a great concern uh, for repopulation, and so women's role was to seen as being to stay at home and produce good, strong, healthy children, especially sons, who could go off and get killed in the next war, which actually is what happened. Who were the key suffragist figures, and what was happening at Newnham and Girton College? Well, Millicent Fawcett was one of the um, key su suffragists. Uh, she welcomed the First World War. She said something like, uh, we... Um, it was like the Industrial Revolution, that it, we started as serfs and we've been liberated and let free. She was enormously optimistic about it. Emmeline Pankhurst was a, um, a, a key figure. Can you tell me about her? Well, Emmeline Pankhurst was a leading suffragette. Mm -hmm. uh, and she had three daughters, uh, Sylvia, Christabel, and another one whose name I've forgotten. And they, some of them, one of them supported her, the other two disagreed with her. But she was in and out of prison the whole time. There was this awful thing called the Cat and Mouse Act. So if you got, um, if a woman got sent into prison, she would often go on hunger strike and then if, uh, refused to be fed, refused to eat, and sometimes they were for these women were force fed, and then they were released. And the horrible thing is that they were released, and then 30 days later they were picked up again. So, in the 30 days, uh, they recovered their health because they started eating as soon as they got out of prison. So, as soon as they were well enough, they were put back in prison, and then they went back on hunger strike again. 
Um, so they, they were really in the battles. What about Caroline Hasler? Who was she? Oh, Caroline Hasler. She, um, she was a young girl. Um, she rebelled against her parents. Uh, she ran off to London when she was quite young, and she became a suffragette. And she, and she found work in an engineering company. And when the war started, she just managed to work herself up in the hierarchy, and she became a very well-qualified engineer in her own right. And she helped to found the Women's Engineering Society, and she introduced lots of uh, changes. I mean, she was one of the women who was very optimistic about the technological future. She saw things like vacuum cleaners and fridges and ovens not as imprisoning or capturing women. She saw them as liberating women, whereas I'm not sure we feel like that now. Um, How important was new technology in World War I? And how big a role did women play um, in developing it? Because they they were actually doing some pretty advanced stuff, weren't they? Well, they were. Um, There is an argument that... the most important technology was barbed wire, and the tank. The only truly new technology uh, was the tank, mm. and that made a huge difference. There were quite a lot of chemical developments. So, for example, uh, poison gas was quite widely used, and there was one woman who was at Imperial College in London, a woman called Martha Whiteley. And she led a seven-woman team, and they went down into a mock trench that was dug in the gardens of Imperial College in Kensington. It was dug next to the chemistry lab, and she she was sent samples of the new poison gases that were coming out of Germany. And she and her team used to um, put them into the crook of their elbow to see how they reacted and develop counterblasts. And she, she also uh, developed a new kind of tear gas, and she was credited as a newspaper headline as the woman who made the Germans weep. I think the most striking thing is the enormous variety of things that they worked in, sort of like ballistics and chemistry and vitamin preservation, uh, food conservation, uh, medicine obviously and medical research. So they would they were doing everything, the mathematical, the physical and the biological sciences that we often just don't associate with women at all. Um, now the vote was won by the end of the war um, after all of these changes yeah. um, and then um, society, well the men basically tried to get the genie back in the bottle didn't they? Well men came back and they, they, they said, said life's got to go back to normal, uh, we want these women out of uniform, we want these women back at home, they've all got to have babies and they've got to look after us. The unions the whole time had been pretty uncooperative um, and they, they didn't try very hard to get equal wages for women as for, for men. So off between the wars the only jobs really open to women were the very low paid ones because everyone was giving uh, the higher paid ones to men and obviously men were applying for the higher paid jobs. Patricia Farrell, thank you very much indeed for spending some time to talk to me on this. Oh well thank you very much, it's been lovely talking to you like it always is. Looking at abstract art in a gallery can often take us far away from the troubling and busy world and enables us to use our minds differently in a way that's relaxing, stimulating and rewarding. Closely related to this is the idea that art has a spiritual dimension and can transcend everyday experience, reaching a spiritual plane. The idea has been put forward by Charles Baudelaire that all our senses respond to various stimuli, but the senses are connected at a deeper aesthetic level. Abstract art is often seen as carrying a moral dimension in that it can be seen to stand for virtues such as order, purity, simplicity and spirituality. 
the universal and timeless shapes, circles, square and triangle become spatial elements in abstract art. They are, like colour, fundamental systems underlying visible reality. I've been talking to artist Peter Hawksby at his studio in Norfolk Street to learn more. Originally from Middlesbrough, he became a teacher and painter and has been most influenced by Vermeer, Mondrian and Picasso, as well as artists George Brack, Sean Scully and Richard Diebenkorn. How do you describe um, the kind of paintings that you do exactly? When people ask me that, I have to use the word abstract, but I don't like the word abstract because nothing is really abstract. When, when anybody looks at anything, no matter how minimal, they will make associations somehow. So I prefer to think of it as non-depictive. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the ultimate non-depictive to me was someone like Mondrian, who reduced his means to verticals and horizontals and primary colours only with black and white and and yet even he would he'd even make spiritual associations with his structures and the rhythmic structures reminded him of dance rhythms so you know there's no escape so my painting is also verticals and horizontals I started that way back in uh, 1968 was my first one and it's been coming and going ever since but the last uh, 15 years it settled down to be only that and I felt that at last I'd started to formulate it into a language because with that sort of means you know what are you actually saying are you just making patterns and blocks and things or can you actually make it into something that actually has an identity and an emotional direct expression and it's this it's the, the idea of it as a direct expression that I really like where to use uh, obviously Kandinsky's expression of music as a, a direct emotional experience. Uh, I don't think painting can ever get that far, quite frankly, because, like I said, people will always associate something with it. But Perhaps I can add in a couple yes. of little definitions which I came across, sure. um, which is, um, you know, in describing abstract art, it's, it's art that uses visual language of shape, form and colour and line to create a composition which may exist with a degree of independence from vis visual references. And, and it's art that doesn't attempt to represent an accurate depiction of visual reality, but instead uses shapes, colours, forms and gestural marks to achieve its effect. And strictly speaking, the word abstract means separate or to withdraw from something, to, um, from to extract. Something to extract, yeah. Yes. Uh, a term which can be applied to art that's based on an object, figure or landscape where the forms have been simplified or scheme, schematized. Uh, does, does it doesn't have to be schematized. No. Simplified is probably okay. Yeah. All of those formal points you made apply to all painting yeah. from the past, right? From, you know, even cave that's painting. Okay. They're all there, and so all painting has that abstract element in it. Whether you then reduce the, uh, the referential side to the recognition of uh, the world, that's the bit you can push, and that's where you, you know, you're abstracting the formal and trying to make it an independent, direct expression of emotion without reference. Now you said it was a, a spiritual thing. I think it is. I just think it has a, a moral dimension to it. Um, can it be seen to stand for virtues such as order or purity or simplicity or spirituality? Is it something? If like if the work has its own, uh, I did use the word identity. That identity can be pure. It can be calming. It can be uh, uplifting. I would hope. Mm. Moral and spiritual, 
I just don't know about that. You know, I, it, it's not in my mind when I do these. But Mondrian was a theosophist, I believe, and so he, you know, to him the vertical was the male principle, the horizontal was the female principle, and I thought, oh, yeah, okay, if you want that, you can get on with that, but I, I do not think like that. So when someone looks at something, they, they will bring themselves to it, whatever you do. Uh, my references are mostly architectural, if anything, interior spaces, and the spaces can suggest, it can even suggest windows, doors, and even figurative presences, but it's still, you know, it's, it's still not there unless you want to see it. Now, we're looking at um, a, a very nice work of yours, which um, uh, is on the wall, a nice large canvas, um, lots of greens, um, oranges, and um, quite a lot of greens and oranges, and you've got a sort of pinky red colour, and basically there's lots of oblongs, um, squares, and um, and they're all kind of um, th- th- these are suggesting um, an interior space, are they? Basically, well, do they to you? Um, well, um, it seems to me to be what you're doing is you're inviting people to step into the picture. Yes, certainly. And, 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 and then kind of encountering these things as not necessarily um, um, as near or as far away as they actually um, as, as as they may or may not be basically well so it, it is possible to play little games with those spatial yeah. references by the choice of color and line things that line up uh, thresholds and breaks in the space I've spent most of today working on that but it's been on the go for well over a year that painting um, I've made some changes to the organization but gradually what has mostly changed is the color scheme which has become softer and more limpid with a hopefully some feeling of light in in it and so it's taken me that long to get used to what the you know the painting has evolved and all my paintings I hope evolve in that way they gradually they take over hopefully that's my aim um, so that um, is I'm it intended to, to be um, a puzzle as well? Um, no, it, uh, not at all. Because it, it, it does have an element to me of, well, of something that could be a puzzle, basically. It's so, like a sliding tile puzzle, uh, if you want yeah, to be like that about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but that's not in my mind at mm-hmm. all. I want clarity. Mm-hmm. I want to see it all at once. Mm-hmm. I don't want to. I don't want to sort of bounce around and get stuck somewhere. I want it to be harmonious. I want it to balance. And, yet, and then I wanted to become one object, because I'm very conscious of making an object when a painting is an object, and it should it, to be a good object and justify its existence is very important to me. Um, now, now, with the various shapes that you have, uh, um, you have strips um, of, of colour, you have um, blocks of colour, you have oblongs of colour, um, and some of them... Um, seem to disagree with each other. Some of them seem to go. They seem to be tessellated like blocks of wood in a certain extent. Well, you've got lots of lots of levels uh, into it. Do, do you do you consciously put all of those things in? They it? they gradually group themselves yeah. as yeah. as I keep working on them. I put them away and I get them out and I take a photograph and I'll go home and look at the photograph on my phone and think, oh, that's a bit terrible. So they form groups, but then the groups swap and change. So that in itself is a sort of puzzle, but again, it's not deliberately done, but it, the group, one group might flow into another. 
well one space might go back and one might come forward but then your eye will go to another group and I hope this is what makes it interesting because you can look I want people to be able to live with these and look at them and not get bored with them and you've also got that fitted together feeling as well uh, that's um, important which is that, that comes from craft does it from carpentry or something like that so you well I must <laughs> I must confess I do love woodwork and I always have yeah. um, building building anything out of wood is uh, so yes um, I'm fine with that uh, the craft element is painting is a craft too but you know you have to make it the physically stick and play with the textures and the means of applying the paint sometimes I just scrape it on sometimes I'll brush it thinly sometimes I'll put a glaze over the top but that's because the painting's suggesting that that's what it needs. But you know, hopefully, that's where they eventually, you know, start to become independent objects. To me, the aesthetics, as I've said earlier, is about the harmony, the balance. Nothing jars, sticks, you know, holds you up from exploring the painting. A lot of art is not about aesthetics. It's about brutal messages mm -hmm. and agendas. So you know, aesthetics. If you want them, you can have them, but yeah. a lot of art is not about that at all. Uh, you can't escape them, but yeah. a lot of artists just rather, it's all about the message, the agenda, the, which again is not my cup of tea, but so yeah, I could say mine are more about the aesthetics than yeah. anything else. It, I, hope, I hope people will start to understand the process and the preoccupation and how it can be um, very satisfying and rewarding and enriching. Well, the candle is all but burned out, so it's time to say goodbye until the next edition of Cambridge Arts Roundup. I hope you've enjoyed being with me, Simon Burton, on Cambridge 105, and we'll tune in again soon.